0: night, I wanted to continue our journey with the foundations. So, you know, we've spent a lot of time, a good amount of time, I thought, um, the last month on the body. And so I'm just going to do a little review on what we've talked about, um, about the body, and then move into the second foundation of mindfulness, which I think is important, um, because it's kind of subtle, which is feelings. Our second foundation of mindfulness is feelings. And I know in my own experience as a practitioner, I kind of ignored it for a while. Like in the first few years of practice, I really focused heavily on the body, and I wasn't quite sure how the feelings part of the path um, was helpful or significant. And so I'm hoping to put that in perspective for you so you can jump into that part of the foundation of mindfulness, because there's a lot of really cool stuff associated with mindfulness of feeling. Um, So we'll get into that today, and we'll see if that can help your practice. The As we said before, there's there's four foundations of mindfulness and the foundations of mindfulness, simply put, are just the domains of experience or the parts of ourselves that we can bring into awareness. So the four foundations of mindfulness are just just the places we can actually place awareness, right? What objects of meditation are skillful for our practice? So the four foundations are basically body, which we've just gone over the last few weeks, Now, the body includes the classic mindfulness of breathing. And if any of you were there for the very first few Wednesday wake up uh, Dharma talks, when we were actually at the meditation center, you might remember that one of the first things I started talking about was the fact that awareness of breathing is actually awareness of body, that sometimes we forget that mindfulness of breathing is actually the first foundation of mindfulness, which is the body, because we can only know breathing inside the context of how it feels with the arising and passing of breath. So we have our breath practices, which is the first foundation of mindfulness. We have our postures, sitting, standing, walking, lying down. We use our postures to really get in touch with the fact that we are physical creatures that change shape, right? That we can intentionally move, that we have this proprioceptive sense where we can move in space and we can bring mindfulness to that movement. We can be mindful of the way it feels to be sitting. We can be mindful of what it feels to move from sitting to standing or from sitting to lying down. So that's our postures. And then we have the elements that we can be aware of. This is going to be heat in the body. This can be solidity, the earth element fire element water element moisture that we feel like on the touch of the skin or moisture that we can feel in the mouth when we do body part meditations it would be moisture or liquidity inside the body so we can recognize that the body is elemental in nature right it's physical it has this earth quality to it so we have our elements and then we also have our body part meditations where we can look and remind ourselves that what we call the body is actually a series of component parts. So there's all these different systems in the body we can be aware of and awake to. And we can use each part of the body to be awake and aware to impermanence or awake and aware of not self. So we have our body parts, the body itself, the postures, we have breathing. Um, And then the last two are death contemplations, which again, gets us in touch with the fact that a human body gets sick, ages, and eventually passes away. So again, this is the body foundation, the form foundation. So we do death contemplations. And the last one, which isn't formally listed in uh, the first foundation, but in my experience as a student, I've always done practices as the first foundation would be sense door practices, where you might listen to different sounds or if you do a music meditation where you're going to be listening to music and you listen as hearing mindfulness of hearing or you do some kind of visualization or you notice seeing like robert beady always likes to say is like be a way aware of seeing so being aware that sense contact is happening at our sense doors is very much connected to this first foundation of mindfulness Most of the time we do sense door practice on retreat. That's the easiest place to do it because you can set it up and you can be in a room and you can rotate senses. So sense door practice for me at least falls under the first foundation of body. So we have all these ways of being in touch with the fact that we're embodied beings. We're embodied beings breathing. We're embodied beings standing, walking, lying down. So we have this physicality to ourselves which is really important. Another reason the first foundation is the body, as I've said before, is that the body is the largest object that we can bring awareness to. It's also a pretty slow moving object, say compared to thinking or feeling. So it's much easier to be able to land awareness somewhere in the body sphere and get a nice home for present moment awareness. So we have our body, That's our first foundation of mindfulness. And most of our practices that we're doing in insight meditation and Vipassana are really centered on the framework of the body. The second foundation of mindfulness is what we call feelings, and out the gate, it's important to remember that in the Dharma, feelings, which in Pali is Vedana, feelings is not emotions. So emotions is something separate. Emotions comes next in the third foundation of mindfulness, but feelings is the base of our emotions. Feelings is positive, negative, and neutral sensations. Positive, negative, and neutral sensations. So when we talk about feelings, we're talking about the underpinning of emotions, the very base responses that human beings have when sense, when the sense doors make impact and contact with the outside world, that contact immediately brings a sensation that's either pleasurable, not pleasurable or neutral. So it's positive, negative, neutral. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So those are the base feelings that we have at the base of consciousness once our sense doors get activated. The other foundations of mindfulness include mind, where we have thoughts and feelings, stories. That's what we we call mind. And then we have this last foundation of mindfulness that's called dhammas, which is concepts like spiritual concepts so we'll get to those in the next few weeks but today I wanted to talk about pleasant unpleasant and neutral feelings as the second foundation of mindfulness and I hope to like give you a sense of why it's so important or at least in my experience why it's become so important in my practice emotions as we know them in western psychology are much more complex than our base feelings So in Western psychology, you might call feelings valence or hue, it's just a tone, it's like a feeling tone, but it's not a complex emotion like anger or ill will or sadness, those are considered to have a little bit more complexity. The pleasant unpleasant and neutral are very intuitive it's considered to be the underlying cause or the root spark of our whole palette of emotional experience, right? This is the first seed of the arising of emotional experience upon sense door contact. So you can see it is very uh, primitive and a very base fight or flight type of mechanism inside consciousness. So we're getting down to the root. The other thing to keep in mind, the reason it goes body and then feelings is that the sense doors are of course part of the body. And once energy in the form of light hitting the eyes or sound waves hitting the ears make contact with our first foundation, the next thing that gets lit up in consciousness is the body and heart saying, is this a pleasant experience? Is this an unpleasant experience? Or is it just sort of neutral? Am I ambivalent to what's happening? And as I go on, I'll explain to you why this is so significant to the the way that we react in the world. I think it can be helpful when we talk about feelings to understand why the mind is built this way. So from an an adaptive perspective, from a biological perspective, human beings, in order to survive, really have needed a way to respond to immediate danger, right? We've had to be able to respond to immediate danger without thinking too much about it, right? So if you imagine, this sort of primitive mechanism in the heart and mind, in consciousness, which evaluates an experience without us having to think really quickly, this essentially protects us from danger. So if I'm gonna see a lion on the trail, how much time do you really wanna spend trying to figure out whether that's a pleasant or unpleasant thing coming your way? You don't wanna spend too much time having to think about it. What you want is the mind to say lion, unpleasant run that's what you really want that's the best way for an organism to survive is to have a built-in mechanism where we can have something come into our senses and without thinking about it we just stereotype the situation and we say lion bad run and we just we immediately act without thinking about it or pondering it because if you think about it and ponder it by then not much survival rate for the species if we don't have some way of dealing with immediate danger you might even think of it like, um, you know, like fire, for example, right? If you look in the corner of their room and you see that part of your room is on fire, you want to immediately say unpleasant danger, put the fire out. You don't want to have to contemplate the nature of fire and wonder if it's hot or if it's going to burn your house down. I mean, you don't want to do any of that contemplation and projection. You really want to be able to notice immediately whether some experience or some situation that's coming into your frame of perception is positive, negative, or neutral. So if it's pleasant, you then can feel safe, and then you can begin to ponder it. But if it's unpleasant, you may have to fight or flee from the situation, and you don't want to have to do much pondering, because there just isn't a lot of survival value in doing that. So you can think of feelings as our base emotions, right? This is the foundation of what we call liking and disliking or craving and aversion, right? This primitive response, unpleasant. Okay, I don't like this sensation. I'm averse to the sensation. Okay, now I'm going to tell a story about it. I'm going to push away from it now that I can have some space. But immediately, your mind is just going to say, unpleasant. I don't like this. Liking and disliking craving and aversion. So that's what we're talking about when we say feelings. I had this experience a while back that really captured this. And I actually, in retrospect, like moments after, I remember thinking to myself, oh, this is interesting because I was aware that something was wrong before I was able to really react. So I was sweeping, I was sweeping the floor and what had happened was a wasp had come into the house And it actually landed like right in the crook of my arm and i didn't know and i was just sweeping and as i swept like i ended up squeezing the wasp in my arm and it was stinging me now unfortunately my sleeve had covered it so i couldn't see that it was there but what happened was in my consciousness was all of a sudden i stopped and had this real strange sense of fear and that something wasn't right like something's not right what's going on but there was no thoughts or reflection and then I looked down and I pulled back my sleeve and of course I swatted away the wasp but consciousness was saying unpleasant you must do something about this but it hadn't gone into like a thinking mode it hadn't gone into some contemplation it was a very primitive something's not right here you better do something about it quickly and my instinct was to try to go down to my arm and figure out what the problem was because I couldn't see it with my eyes ironically, that's not the first time. The story I just told you isn't the first time that that's happened to me. It's actually happened to me twice. But the one with the sweeping was the one where I was aware that my body told me that there was danger and that there was displeasure, even before I thought of pain, that there was just something wrong and I needed to react and protect myself. So that's what we mean by pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. The challenge, of course, with this mechanism is that When you're at a point in society or human development where you are doing a lot of fight and flight, right? Where you really are in a lot of physical danger and you must protect yourself and be on the alert constantly, this mechanism is divine, right? It really helps us to survive. But when you no longer have lions and tigers and bears, so to speak, and that your basic interaction is going to work and sitting around watching Netflix and so on, this mechanism is still running underneath consciousness. So we still have a part of our consciousness that's scanning the room and scanning experience and asking the question, is this pleasant? Is this unpleasant? Or is this neutral? Now, generally speaking, it may not be that big of a deal, but the problem is that it can be co-opted and sort of turned against ourselves, right? We can misuse the mechanism, and it ends up causing dukkha. It ends up contributing to stress and discontent. So I'm going to give you some really easy examples of how this mechanism that's designed to protect us and really is responsible for a significant trajectory of our survival, how it can be turned against us and turn into dukkha, which then, of course, leads to why we would use it in awareness in meditation to unwind the dukkha of these pleasant, neutral and I'm sorry, pleasant, unpleasant and neutral sensations. Think of advertising and this is an obvious one. Advertising is designed to stimulate your sense doors in a way that triggers desire, right? Triggers desire for you to act or to purchase a product or engage in a particular activity. Advertising is not designed necessarily to make you think about things. Advertising wants to send you an image, have it hit your sense doors, and the response that advertisements are looking for is pleasant, liking, I want that thing, right? Ooh, that's pleasant. That's a pleasant image. Maybe I should purchase. So advertising is one of those mechanisms of communication that really goes down to this cycle of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and tries to trigger it and stimulate it. The reason it does that is positive and neutral sensations lead to craving and aversion. So if you can be triggered to have a sensation of pleasantness, which then can be parlayed into liking, which then can be coaxed into clinging, grasping, craving, now they've got you hooked. Because this is below logic. You're not thinking about it. It's really striking a very primitive part of the brain. If you think about how commercials work, oftentimes the imagery in commercials are designed to give you a pleasant sensation and may have nothing to do with the actual product, right? You, you We all know this. This is how commercials work. But you don't think of it in terms of the dharma, right? Liking, disliking, pleasure, pain, craving, aversion. So think about it. I often think it's interesting when people talk about how we have so much um you know sexualized imagery in advertising right and so oftentimes i'll hear people saying oh you know we're selling sex actually we're not selling sex what we're selling what we're trying to cultivate is a sense of pleasantness and sexual imagery is such a potent image that it's really helpful in advertising to have an attractive person culturally speaking, next to a product. Because the attractive person sparks a sense of, ooh, pleasant. And now I've associated that pleasantness with the product. And now I'm grasping and clinging because I want that thing because I've already been told, oh, pleasant. That's pleasant. So it's really interesting to think that imagery and sounds and communication are going under our rational thinking and are triggering this base craving and aversion process that we have in consciousness, which is why it's so important in the Dharma and the Buddha spends so much time talking about craving and aversion. Pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral is the soil out of which craving and aversion arise. It's below that phenomenon. Another example I was thinking of the other day was just the way that we approach things like Like, for example, I was noticing I was watching Netflix. Of course, you all know I'm a TV person. So I was watching Netflix and I was scrolling through like, oh, so what is new on Netflix? And so I noticed this is how my mind works. It's like you're looking at the images and you're scrolling through. And basically what your mind is saying at the base level is neutral, neutral, neutral. Oh, pleasant. I'm going to click on that to see what it is. So what you're doing is you're just being triggered by an image of a possible experience. And the image is designed for me to click on it to see if that's the movie I want to watch. It could be the same if you're shopping on Amazon. It could be the same when you're looking at Facebook or Instagram or social media. You're just scrolling down and then something says pleasant and that's what you click on. You don't even think about it. It could be a puppy, it could be a quote, it could be something. Whatever it is that makes you feel that sense of pleasure and gets you on that route of craving. The stimulation through social media and TV is designed to get us to like, right? To crave, to grasp, and to hold on to. And it does that by shooting an arrow right down into the sense of cultivating pleasure beneath our rational thinking. So that is hugely important because by the time we've already gone on to Amazon Prime and bought the product. We've already been triggered already and we haven't noticed how we've gotten to the purchase. because if you think about it, <laughs> how would advertising be helpful if it encouraged you to think about whether you had too many of that product or if the product was overpriced or you re, to ask you to think, do I really need another one of these? We wouldn't <laughs> advertising wouldn't work at all if it did that, right. It wants you to go to straight to craving to clinging to please send it to my doorstep what you see with this and why it's so important in the dharma. Without mindfulness, without, without wakefulness, we're constantly acting. We're constantly grasping and clinging and purchasing and consuming without having noticed that we've been triggered. We're already engaged in the action before we even know that the seed of those actions have arisen. In this case, our desire for pleasant sensations has encouraged us to do something that might not be in our budget, right? We might not need it, we might be over consuming. So we have to be careful about being aware of that initial moment where pleasantness is stimulated in the heart and the mind. Because if we can catch it as it's arising, then we can make a much more skilled decision of whether we wanna go down the rabbit hole with a particular desire. Do I really need to purchase that thing? Do I really need to do or say that thing? But once we're triggered, if we don't bring mindfulness to feelings, then we might, be, we might be already at the doorstep getting the package before we realize that we were even stimulated to buy the thing. So this is really important in the Dharma because it's a chain of causality. Our actions, our thoughts, and our views rest upon the stimulation of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral sensations. All of our actions, our views, and our thoughts rest upon this foundation of this very subtle trigger of liking and disliking. Another prime example in relationship to disliking, which I think is really pertinent to the times that we're in right now, and since there was at least the vice presidential debate on uh, moments ago, you will notice a lot in politics right now, especially um, one of the things that I've noticed, and we've all seen this. Donald Trump likes to use nicknames for people, right? Instead of addressing people by their names, he inserts an adjective in front of the name. So instead of saying Hillary Clinton, he says Crooked Hillary. Instead of saying COVID, he says Chinese virus. Instead of saying Joe Biden, he says Sleepy Joe Biden. So what is this doing? This is intentional. This is not some kind of random act. So... The word crooked has a certain negative valence to it. It speaks to the mind underneath rational thinking and says, someone who's crooked is bad. So if you hear the word crooked Hillary over and over and over again, what's triggered underneath is an association from Hillary to crooked because they're paired together. And if you don't have enough mindfulness to see that the pairing is happening and what that intention might be, you may act just on the negative sensation of aversion. Because now when you hear Hillary, you think crooked and your heart says, this is a bad person. This is a negative person. And before you know it, you're chanting, lock her up. Because the underlying trigger of consciousness has already been put together, right? It's been mapped together. Same with Chinese virus, right? This is one that people had a really hard time with. People were asking Trump to to say COVID because saying Chinese virus had a problem. The virus scares us. The virus is dangerous. The virus can end a life. And when you put those two words together and you put them across mass media, what began to happen? We saw an increase in physical assaults to people with Chinese heritage. So what we're seeing is the energy goes in underneath and says, negative, negative, unpleasant, unpleasant and we don't even think about it. Before you know it, the action of assaulting someone was planted in the seeds of consciousness with this what is supposed to be a helpful tool for consciousness has now been in a sense spun out and turned against us and it now creates suffering. And if we don't have the mindfulness to see that there isn't actually a connection between the aversive emotion and Chinese virus, we may find ourselves physically acting out unskillfully towards another human being because the cycle has already gone from unpleasant to hatred, to ill will, to violence, this causal chain of unskillful actions. So it's really important to get in touch with, this is why this is an important foundation of mindfulness because Skillful and unskillful actions have a chain of causality that begin way deep in the psyche, all the way down to is this pleasant, is this unpleasant. And if we're not mindful, we can trick our own heart and mind to engaging in unskillful behavior, unskillful speech, and significant reactivity if we don't catch the causal chain. This is why causality is so big in the dharma. Because with mindfulness, we can see the seeds of our actions. We can actually see the seeds of hatred as they build and are triggered and instigated way deep inside at the level of craving, aversion, liking, disliking. What you see here is the seeds of stereotypes, right? So if you look at how this mechanism works in the heart and mind, because this mechanism is designed to bypass thinking, if I see a lion, so here's how it would develop. I'm, I'm of course, reducing this down <laughs> to being, uh, anyway, it's, this is a, a very overly simplified <laughs> version of this, but I'm, I'm with my culture, right? And we're walking along and a lion appears on the path and ends up eating somebody, right? So now we know, okay, that's a dangerous animal. We do not wanna happen. We don't wanna have that happen again. So now we have an imprint, lion, unpleasant flea, right? Or lion, unpleasant fight. We don't want to think about it. We now have this stereotypical imprint. This thing is bad. When you see it, you fight against it. You want to attack it. You want to defend yourself. So what you see in consciousness, there's a way of developing prejudice, right? That has nothing to do with thinking. We have prejudice against people and places and experiences that we build up over time because we have this mechanism that stereotypes, is this good? Is this bad? Am I safe? Am I unsafe? And if we don't bring awareness to it, if we don't bring mindfulness to it, it just runs on autopilot and our biases and our bad experiences can then be imprinted at such a deep level of consciousness that before we know it, we're acting out in unskillful ways towards somebody simply because they remind us of somebody or they remind us of a place or an experience we have these associations that we have deep in consciousness that are out of awareness so one of the reasons the buddha invites us to be aware and awake to craving and aversion liking and disliking pleasant and unpleasant all the way down to the seeds of those emotions is because when we bring awareness there, we gain some control. We gain some autonomy. We can really change unconscious actions that are unskillful by getting in touch with the source of those actions, which is really deep in the psyche. It is difficult, though, of course, to be able to notice craving and aversion at that deep level of the mind. And so we need to practice with it. We have to be intentional with it because it's very subtle and we've all had experiences where we find ourselves doing things and we didn't even realize, well, here's another example. Like I'll be working on a Dharma talk. And then the next minute I'm staring into the refrigerator and like, how did that happen? Like there was a sense of unpleasantness, right? Or boredom or agitation. And before you know it, I'm walking downstairs and I'm like, Oh, maybe I'll snack on something. With awareness, I might've noticed that first craving of something of boredom or hunger, it could have been hunger, might've just been, I was just bored and I wanted to go do something else. So if we notice that craving and aversion right at the spark, then we have the ability for awakening and for wisdom. But in order to catch it, we have to be really intentional. We have to be awake and aware to it as it's happening. Now, one way we do that, is just to develop concentration. And I've said this before in other uh, Dharma talks when we talk about meditation itself, that part of the reason we want to cultivate continuous mindfulness is because continuous mindfulness sharpens our awareness. So we can see subtler and subtler aspects of the heart-mind phenomenon. So practicing regular with meditation will naturally increase your ability to direct your attention to things like, oh, look, disliking is arising. Unpleasantness is arising. Huh, what is up with that? What is the trigger in this moment? So your general practice, if you do it regularly, will encourage a sharper mind that will allow concentration to develop. And in turn, you'll be able to see more subtle aspects of what's going on inside. It's a very intimate experience if you think about it. Because there's a lots of things that are going on in the heart that we don't really notice if our awareness is too dull right if we can't see clearly we can't see the cause of happiness we can't see the cause of suffering until we've already put our foot in our mouth or the cookie in our mouth or whatever right we've already gotten to the unskillful action because we didn't have the clarity of consciousness to be able to see what was happening. So with your general practice, your concentration over time will increase and you'll be able to see feelings really clearly. Now, another thing that you can do in your general meditation, no matter what meditation you're doing, you could do this. You could stop every three or four minutes and just ask yourself, are these sensations pleasant? Are they unpleasant or are they neutral? In this very moment of presence, what is the sensation at that level? Is there a sense of neutrality? Is there a sense of aversion? Or is there a sense of pleasantness? And if you do that intentionally throughout your meditation, over time, the mind will naturally ask itself that question and it will begin to look for the pleasant and unpleasant and neutral triggers that are happening deep in the mind. The main thing is to intend to look for it. Simply inviting the mind to inquiry, saying, hey, what am I feeling right now? Is this pleasant? And really bringing awareness to the heart and mind in that moment, you'll be surprised at what you can notice. It's just a matter of practice. Even though it's subtle, intention goes a long way to cultivating this second foundation of mindfulness. one of the things the Buddha encouraged his um, disciples, I guess you could say, in the community of monastics to do is to always pay attention to praise and blame. And so what the Buddha said is a great way of noticing the initial trigger of pleasant and unpleasant is when someone praises you or they criticize you. And the reason being is we are biologically programmed, so to speak, that when we get praise, there's this natural, ooh, that feels good, pleasant. And when someone criticizes us, there's this natural sense of agitation, aversion, discomfort. And so throughout our day and as we're moving through the world, take note when someone is complimenting you or thanking you or praising you, notice the awareness of pleasant. Oh, that's pleasant. That feels good. And then you may notice liking, I like when people compliment me or thank me. And there's nothing wrong, of course, with compliments and thankfulness and gratitude, but you just want to notice. It's a great training ground to notice pleasant sensations. Aversion is the same type of thing. Think of it in this moment. When people criticize us, man, there's that cringe in the heart, right? When someone's like, you didn't do a good enough job, or you're not meeting expectations, or you're not good enough. That's a shortcut to aversion, right there. That's like zero to three seconds, and you're already, you know, kind of cringing. So notice when there's criticism coming your way, the sense of unpleasant. I'm having an unpleasant sensation at the level of the heart or the level of the mind. Blame and praise, criticism, critique, those are things that really tend to activate, and you can see clearly pleasant and neutral and unpleasant sensations that arrive at the base of consciousness. Now, the, the third one in there that I haven't really talked about too much, because it's the hardest one to notice, of course, is neutral sensations. Neutral sensations are hard to notice because oftentimes, if you're feeling happy or pleasant, that you know. And it, certainly, if you're feeling unpleasant, that is something we also are aware of. But if you're feeling neutral, it might not even register on your radar at all. Neutral sensations, Goinkaji once said that neutral sensations are some of the hardest things to notice because sometimes it's like a nothingness. You're not even registering them. You really have to be mindful and intentional to take note when your mood is really neutral, really neutral. Now, for me, the trick that I've found is really helpful is that you can activate that awareness towards neutral sensations by paying attention to boredom. Paying attention to boredom. Now, boredom isn't totally neutral, because most of us, when we're bored, want to get out of the boredom, and there's a sense of aversion, and we're like, oh, I want to stimulate myself because I'm feeling bored. But if you can catch boredom before you start trying to wash it away with Sex, drugs, and alcohol, so to speak, then you can catch neutrality because boredom is often like, I'm not feeling stimulated enough in this moment. I'm going to turn on the TV or I'm going to get up and take a walk or I'm going to check and swipe through my email on my phone. Boredom often is a feeling of aversion, but there's also a sense of neutrality. It's a sense of I'm not being stimulated enough, I'm not feeling totally uncomfortable but I'm certainly not feeling pleasant sensations. But this kind of malaise, this kind of middle ground, don't like it so much. So I found that when I become aware of boredom, I can feel underneath a sense of neutrality. And that gives me sort of a litmus test that allows me a little pathway in to the heart and mind where I can begin to feel what neutrality, neutral sensations really feel like. Neutral sensations are tough. Neutral sensations are tough. I've struggled with them for a lot. I always, sometimes I just forget that they're there because liking, disliking is easy because when I'm liking something, I'm certainly aware of it. When I'm disliking something, not so hard either. But when I'm just in a neutral state, there's not much there to be aware of. So as Goenka says, some of the hardest sensations to notice are neutral sensations. Bringing this all together in relationship to the Dharma, it's important for us to remember, as I always like to say, that the Buddha's insight is that we play a role in shaping our experience. And yes, I'm gonna keep saying this until we are all enlightened. We play a role in shaping our experience. And this role that we play is about causality, that we participate, meaning we co-create or co-cause our happiness and we co-cause our suffering. It's because of that causality that we can be free. It's because of that fact that we can actually go inside and practice skills and have an experience of wakefulness and compassion and joy and freedom. It's because there's a causal chain that we participate in. So feelings are a really important part of the causal chain. By the time we get to unskillful action, three steps before that, there was some stimulation somewhere in consciousness, pleasant, unpleasant, craving, aversion, liking, disliking, and with practice, We can get down into there and see suffering at its source. And we can become mindful and awake and choose how we react. So those feelings are kind of subtle. Using them really helps with this causal chain. It really helps us learn how we're participating in our own suffering. And it really is designed for our own liberation. So think of it in terms of causality, that pleasant neutral and unpleasant sensations are the soil out of which skillful and unskillful actions and thoughts and emotions tend to spring. That's why we get in there and bring awareness to it. And it's why it's the second foundation of mindfulness. The third foundation, which we'll talk about maybe next week, I'm gonna talk about joy next week because joy is also a part of this part, but I didn't wanna go into it tonight. Um, The next part is the complex emotions. So the other thing about feelings that's so helpful that when we get in touch with the body, right? When we use mindfulness to really light up the body, that helps us to really light up the sensations of pleasantness and unpleasantness, craving and aversion. And when we can really begin to see craving and aversion, it gives us access to our emotional world, right? It gives us a really, really deep access to the whole spectrum of our emotional experience. And as so many of us know, emotions are just a human conundrum, right? I mean, they motivate us, they light us up, they make us depressed, they make us angry, they lead to skillful actions and unskillful actions. I mean, whoever invented the human emotional spectrum, it's like, what are you thinking? This craziness inside the heart, right? It's craziness. So getting in touch with feelings and those root emotions, that root tone Really opens up a whole world of access to things like anger and ill will, joy and delight, gratitude, optimism, right? All of those more complex emotions are built on these smaller reactions. So, all of this, too, all of these tools that we're using really is designed for us to heal ourselves from suffering, have deeper connectivity with ourselves and others. So, you can see the bigger picture, even though it seems kind of microcosmic, right? It's such a small little thing, liking, disliking, but it really is the foundation of the whole field of what we experience as human beings. So I think I'm going to stop there. I think that covers what I wanted to cover. There's another part of this that I'll do next week on joy, uh, because there's another element of this that the Buddha talks about in relationship to pleasant, unpleasant, and uh, neutral feelings. And the Buddha has a large um, discourse on why joy is so important in relationship to this, but I wanted to do it justice and do like a separate talk on it. It didn't feel like we should do it all in one uh, talk tonight. Okay, well, my friends, we will be ending on time today. Imagine that. Let us sit back and uh, let's do some meta before we go, before we do our last two, three minutes of meta. I did want to thank everyone who got my email and we did announce that our Dharma talks are now on iTunes and that just tickles me that they're on iTunes. And so, uh, please subscribe. So you'll get the downloads. If you're already, I know a lot of you are already downloading. You can still download on Podbean, no big deal. It's still going to go up there, but every Thursday it will be auto downloaded to iTunes. And then I also made the request as an, a favor and act of Donna, so to speak if you do enjoy the dharma talks and you have been listening to them when you get a chance and you go onto iTunes leave a review and tell people how cool Wednesday wake up is i just think that would be great because i love this community and it's just so much fun so if you're feeling generous like leave a review and tell people how awesome we are so i would love to for you to do that if you you know if it crosses your heart and mind when you download so thank you for that and thanks for all the downloads Um, Let's plop into the present for two, three minutes and remind ourselves of our greater aspirations. Let's return to the body. This entire evening occurs in the framework of the body. Everything that you felt and thought, every movement, every adjustment in your chair, on your couch, all embodied. Embodied beings, foundation of what it is to be human, physical creatures moving in the world. What does your body feel like in this moment? What does your body feel like in this moment? Bring awareness to form the sitting posture, body breathing, body sitting, sitting in this moment. Let's take a minute or two to gladden the heart and mind of this sitting body. Let's call to the altar of our hearts, something that brings us joy, happiness, laughter, connection. Call up to your heart and mind, something you're grateful for. Something that makes you smile. Something that makes you feel loved, cared for, safe and secure. If you're here tonight in this digital Dharma Hall, then something is going well. Someone has loved and cared for you. Listened to you, supported you. There have been blessings. Bring awareness to that feeling of delight, of gratitude, of thankfulness. And imagine sharing that sentiment, that sensation with all beings, radiating out from your heart, radiating out with each breath, sharing with all beings the merits of our practice the aspiration that all beings be free from suffering, that all beings can know true kindness. May all beings know true freedom from suffering in this lifetime. May all beings be free from suffering May all beings be free from danger, worry, and concern. May all beings feel safe and secure. May all beings experience true liberation, true freedom in this lifetime. True liberation in this lifetime. And to conclude our sit, make a wish for the world. If you could wish anything and know it would come to pass, what would your wish be for all beings? For all people, all nations, all countries, the planet itself, what would you wish for all beings? May all beings be free. May all beings be free. thank you my friends as always such a delight to see you and on such a politically significant day that you're here next week joy we'll talk about joy it's a great topic and we'll talk about joy be safe be well take care of yourselves much love to you all thanks so much for coming